Hey, Katie. Hi, Ben. So I don't actually have a pun to start off this episode because what we're talking about is just too cool. We are talking about Mars and uh, more specifically how we get commands to Mars and our little robots on Mars. That's right. Yep. You're listening to Linear Digressions. Yeah, so this is not data science and this is not machine learning, but it's just so darn cool that I thought it was worth doing anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there are a few different protocols for getting information to and from space. And what we'll, do you mean by we'll protocol? Go through, um, oh, so do like different types of, of codes that they use. So we're specifically talking about the data encryption and decryption methods that they use. So keep in mind that Mars is very far away. Um, and so you want to definitely not have to resend messages and things like that uh, if they're not received correctly. So another corollary of that is that uh, because Mars missions are very expensive and there's fairly limited bandwidth that you have on the rover and things like that, they don't have like gigantic uplinks to send back huge amounts of data. So the data that you do send, it's very important that as much as possible it not get corrupted or that more specifically that you have good methods for dealing with it when, you know, the data does get a little bit noisy, you have ways for correcting it. Got it. So it sounds like you're talking uh, not so much about encryption specifically, but more encoding the the methodologies that you use to ensure that you have some kind of redundancy in your protocol. So that way, if any bits get uh, lost or flipped or whatever, also known as data corruption, you can recover the signal but also something that is relatively concise because you don't exactly have a big pipe through which you can send a huge amount of data. That's exactly right. And so there are a few different methodologies that you might use that would sort of fit the bill here. And so I'll talk about one of them that has sort of three components to it. So in order of sort of in chronological order, so to speak, from a a data's eye perspective, and also in order of increasing intricacy and I think awesomeness, we will start with what's called a Reed-Solomon code. So a Reed-Solomon code, the idea here is that you're, uh, it's a block code, so you're encoding blocks of data all together, as opposed to sort of like a streaming code where you're kind of like taking in data as it streams in and then transforming it and sending it back out. And so the idea of a Reed-Solomon code is that for every, let's say, K blocks of actual data that you want to transmit, you attach extra what are called parity bits to the end of that message. I actually know how this one works. This is oh, this yeah? is really cool. And it's used in a whole bunch of different systems. Um, they use it in CDs and DVDs and, and whatnot. Yeah. They also use it in uh, RAID 6 storage. So the idea there is, let's say you have six hard drives. If you want some redundancy, I mean, a naive solution is you say, okay, drive one and drive two are the same, drive three and drive four are the same, five and six are the same. But with this storage system, you can actually use one of your drives as the parity block, and then you get five drives of storage instead of three drives of storage, and then you've got that one extra as your parity. And the idea is that if you lose any of those five, then you can use the parity to recover whatever you lost. And if you lose the parity, well, you're just losing the parity. You're not losing the data itself. Uh, Another place you use this is in QR codes and barcodes. I didn't know that. Yes, indeed. So one of the things that's nice about Reed-Solomon codes, also just to be totally clear about it, is their error-correcting codes. 
uh, and a lot of these codes have error correcting properties, but depending on how many parity bits you attach to the end and also the size of the, the data message itself, you can find and correct up to half as many parity bits as you attach. So let's say you have a message that is 223 data bits long and 32 parity bits, so it's 255 bits total. So of those 32 parity bits, divide that in two, that gives you 16. That's the number of errors that a read Solomon encoder or decoder can find and correct. Uh, so you, it'll actually, depending on how, how badly corrupted your data is, there's actually a really good chance that uh, you'll be able to find all the errors in your code and actually correct them, which is uh, obviously a really nice property if having, you know, sort of high fidelity transmissions is important to you. When I first learned about Reed Solomon error correction, uh, and it was in the context of RAID 6, I was just kind of in awe because it took something that felt technically impossible and showed that it actually, just because of very simple math, was possible. Um, That's how I feel about most of information theory. <laughs> I, I'm actually really excited to hear the other two that you're going to cover because you said that they're um, in ascending order of awesomeness, right? Well, in in, in my opinion. In your um, opinion. Okay. okay, yes, onward and upward. So the next one is convolutional codes. Oh, and actually, Reed Solomon error correction was used on the uh, Voyager probe when it was sending and digital pictures back. That is why we're talking about it. <laughs> Did you already say that? Uh, no, no, but it's, you know, just... Okay, you know, things good. that you get when you're like, <laughs> you know, data transmission space. Anywho, uh, convolutional codes, onward and upward. Yeah. So convolutional code, unlike Reed Solomon, which is a block code, convolutional codes are streaming codes. So you should imagine it as this stream of data that then gets processed and then kind of fed back out the other side of the encoding mechanism. Uh, and so the idea of a convolutional code is it takes in one stream of data and then it puts out more than one stream of data. So you might have something like, one bit that goes for every one bit that goes in there's three output bits that go out in three separate streams and the other thing to keep in mind about especially about these particular types of convolutional codes that i'm about to describe is it's you i find it really useful to think about them in terms of actual physical registers in memory so imagine there are three adjacent little buckets and there's data that kind of comes into bucket one on the left and then it moves on to bucket two, and then on to bucket three, and then there's you know a, the bit that's following behind it and the bit that's in front of it. And so at any given point, there's sort of three bits that are all next to each other in these registers. The idea of a convolutional code is that we're gonna do some algebra on the contents of those registers in a way that then generates the streams of data that come out. Um, oh, so, let's, okay. <laughs> so let's say that um, we have a what's called a 313 convolutional code. So that means that we have three memory registers. We have for every one input bit, there are three output bits. So one of the convolutional codes that you can make here is you take, uh, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna say three things here and it's important that you have all three of them. So the first is your first stream of data that you get out takes the contents of your first register and the contents of your second register and the contents of your third register and it adds them all together modulo two. And whatever the result of that is, a one or a zero, that's what comes out of your first stream. One input bit in, we have one input bit coming out. We want a second input bit that's coming out. And that is, let's say you take your middle register and your leftmost register. So I guess like your first register and your second register. And you add those together, modulo two, that's your second bit. And then the third output bit that you get takes 
your second register and your third register as them together modulo two sends that out. So we have these three different generator polynomials, um, which is the logic of exactly how you add these registers together and, and modulo to them. And those generator polynomials can be kind of complicated. And I think that the way that they actually find out what they are it is sort of through the process of um, simulations, because you want, depending on what those generator polynomials are, you can have better and worse sort of error correcting properties of your convolutional code. But the idea is that then you have not just each bit that gets sort of transformed into three new bits, but that the bits start to get entangled with each other. And so mm -hmm. then each bit that you send in is represented, not just in one bit that comes out, but in sort of like one third of a bit that spread up across these, you know, three different pieces of information that are all sort of streaming out at you at the same time. So it's almost like, it, like the, the image I have in my head, and this is going to be very kind of fuzzy and non-mathematical, but the image I have in my head is you got a bunch of people that all represents the, that all represent the uh, values that go into these registers. And as they're moving along, they're, they're actually connected to each other. And so if one of these people gets wiped out or, you know, turned upside down or, or corrupted somehow, it can almost leverage support from the bit in front of it and the bit bef behind it because the output is not the bits themselves, but the output is an artifact of the bits and the relationships that the bits have to each other, or rather the values have to each other. Does that make, does that kind of feel kind of right? Yeah, I would say that's, that's about right. Yeah, what you get out is not just the original stream, but the original stream as it's been convoluted both with itself for sort of redundancy purposes and with these generator polynomials, which then introduces some of the error correcting properties. Mm. And you get out something that has more bits than you put in. Um, and so you have several different chances to like detect and correct these errors when they happen. So let's suppose you have your convolutional code and this is now onto the third one. So you've got your convolutionally encoded message. I think the example that I was looking at when I was reading up about this is assuming that you have two output bits for every one input bit. So you get a message and it's 14 bits long, and then you want to sort of reverse engineer that into the original seven bit message. Now the question is, how do you do that decoding? And there are a few different ways I think that you can do this, but my favorite is an algorithm that might actually be familiar to a number of our readers. It's called the Viterbi algorithm. Viterbi with a V. Yes, named after, I think, Andrew Viterbi, who was the person who invented it. I was going to say, that does sound like a doctor's name. Yeah. I guess also, this this was confusing me a lot when I was Googling it. There's like a USC's engineering school or business school or something like this is also named for huh. him. So when you Google, you get a lot of um, USC links. Anyway, in the context in which other people might be familiar with the Viterbi algorithm is this is actually used a lot in natural language processing. And someday I will have the time to sit down and actually get all the way through one of the chapters that explains how it's used for that. I've never like quite made it, but within the context of decoding convolutional codes, um, I think I get it. So, and it's really cool. The general idea of the Viterbi algorithm is it's looking for a way of decoding the message that it sees that maximizes basically the probability with respect to what the underlying message could have been that generated that code. And the way that you visualize uh, a Viterbi algorithm at work is actually really cool. It's this thing that's called a trellis diagram, which is probably impossible to actually explain verbally. So I 
might try a little bit, but just keep in mind I'm, I'm that... I'm Googling it. Yeah. Okay. It's something that you need to stare at for a while before you understand it. And yeah. there's, I think, no way that you can, like, fully describe this just with words. It's, and have it yeah, I can't fully describe it, but I can kind of just generally describe it. It looks like uh, a bunch of binary numbers that are kind of in this grid, and you move from left to right, and you've got all of these different arrows connecting these different registers to each other. And... It looks like from, I, I literally just Googled it and landed on the Wikipedia page. So it looks like you have all of these different paths through and you're looking for the most probabilistically, the, the, the most probable path, is that? Yeah, that's a, that's a fair summary. So on lineardigressions.com, as always, we will attach some um, useful background reading material if this is something that you find interesting and I found a particularly good explanation that walks you through a Viterbi decoding sort of step by step and then it makes sense but yeah the rough idea is that you have uh you know like you said sort of this grid of points the grid of points the the way to think about it is that you're imagine that you're sitting at one of these points and as you're decoding the message you're sort of moving from the left hand side of this grid to the right hand side of this grid and you can move along certain arrows uh, and so those arrows are either either sort of pointing down as you move to the right or up as you move to the right. So each step that you take across the grid, you have two options of where you can go. You can step down and forward, or you can step up and forward. I'll come back to why the downs and ups matter in a little while. But the idea is that although there's many different points in the grid, there's only certain points or there's only certain paths that are allowed through the grid because the Viterbi algorithm, the, the exact way that you construct the grid corresponds to valid messages that could have been encoded by the convolutional code that originally encoded the message. So one of the things about convolutional codes, like we said, is that they're sort of entangling the message with itself and with these generator polynomials. And there are certain types of patterns that a convolutional code is just never going to make, regardless of what you put into your your convoluter, I guess, it might never have a message that comes out that starts with, let's say, one zero, um, that the only valid messages that will come out will start with, with either zero zero or one one. And so if the first thing that you see is a one zero, then you know immediately that there's some kind of problem and that this is oh, that's an, an invalid thing for you to have gotten from this convolutional code. And so then you have to figure out what to do. So your decoder is almost... So your decoder is taking advantage of certain properties of the encoder to figure out where errors might have happened. And then yeah, that's it right. uses that information of where the errors might have happened to figure out what the most probable decoding that doesn't hit those errors or something. So maybe you could go through how a Viterbi diagram actually works, or rather a, tre a trellis diagram actually works. Yeah, it, it's pretty hard to explain in tr with true fidelity, given the limitations of the medium that we have right now. I think there's a good analogy here. So imagine that you're trying to get, uh, you're trying to find your way through the woods, let's say, and you know that there's a bunch of trails that you can take. And you know that you have to stay on a trail. There's certain parts of, of the terrain that you really shouldn't be going into. Um, and so right. okay. that corresponds to basically messages that because you know the 
convolutional method that was used to encode the message. Um, that convolutional, uh, you know, the generator polynomials and the, the exact convolutional logic that you used will make it so there's only certain types of valid messages that you can receive. And so, so if there's a bit that gets flipped in your message, yeah. Right. So your forest may be huge, but you really only have so many paths through the forest based on the encoder. So the decoder is taking advantage of that fact. Yeah, yeah. And so let's imagine now you're wandering through the forest and you've gotten some directions from a friend. And the friend says, okay, you're going to walk till you see a fork and then you're going to the right. And then after a little while, you're going to pass a rock. And then after a little bit after that, it's going to go down a little hill and then back up again. And then you're going to come out into a meadow and then you're at my house. And so you have sort of all these mm. way stations as you go that will give you a hint as to none of them are perfect by themselves, but they'll give you a hint about if you're on the right track. Or oh, not. interesting. So those are those are your parody bits. Well, they're not. I don't think they're called parody not bits in this context exactly. Yeah, but those but those are the yeah, those are the things that tell you like, hey, I'm totally on the right trail, or hey, I maybe maybe I'm not on the right trail. Maybe I should go and actually, you know, maybe they meant to say left, but they actually said right. So maybe I'll try that trail and see if I pass that rock and then go down the, uh, yeah, the hill and, and yeah. And this is where the idea of sort of maximizing likelihood starts to make a little bit of sense that. You know, as you're walking along, maybe you're you misheard your friend on the phone and he didn't say rock, but he said block. And, you know, so you have like the (laughs) instructions slightly garbled. And so you're walking and you see a rock. And so initially you take that as a sign that you're on the right trail. But unbeknownst to you, you actually took a wrong turn. But now as you can you never to go, go down the hill yeah you you're expecting to see a hill <laughs> exactly and so by the time you haven't gone down the hill and you know not only have you not come into a meadow but uh you know there's like a stream that you're crossing and you're saying like this seems wrong um and you find you start... a gingerbread house made of entirely candy <laughs> exactly and then and, and and then you're in real trouble um yeah so as you're going further and further down this incorrect path, you're sort of accruing errors as you go that are giving you more and more strong hints that you're doing this the wrong way and you should maybe double back. And so then you go back to maybe like the last place where you're sure that you were actually on the right trail and you try the alternative path and you start to wander down that path. And so maybe then you see a block and you're like, oh, that's funny. I thought there was supposed to be a rock here, but let me just keep going. And then you see your little dip and then you're like, okay, this is starting to look better. And then when you cool. find the, you know, you find the, the meadow and, and everything looks like it's in pretty good shape. Um, the other thing that's kind of cool about the Viterbi algorithm is that it introduces the idea of, you know, if you were to imagine all of the different paths that could correspond to various messages and their encodings and decodings, um, the search space that you have to explore starts to really explode very quickly. And so one of the other things that the Viterbi algorithm does is it has a way of pruning away paths. So let's imagine that the analogy here is that let's imagine there's a fork that you have to take and it's really important that you take uh, the left branch of the fork. And if you took the right branch, then you would end up decoding the wrong message. But then the forks come back together eventually. So you come up to this fork, you try the left branch and things are looking pretty good. You try the right branch and things are looking pretty bad. Either way, uh, 
there's there's sort of two valid paths or two potential paths that you have um, available to you right now. And you break the tie or you sort of prune away the search space a little bit by discarding the right path, the one that is looking like it's less likely than the left path. So it's a way of also kind of keeping the search space from growing out of control by pruning away the low likelihood paths when they start to converge again with the higher likelihood paths. And then the thing that's kind of cool about this is you find your, you pick your way across the trellis diagram and there's this detail of trellis diagrams as you're kind of going along all your various forking paths, which is that they say up arrows correspond to zeros and down arrows correspond to ones. And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense until you actually see a trellis diagram. But the idea is once you've found kind of the best path through the, through the message, um, that kind of gets you, this is what I think the actual message was that was transmitted, even if there might be a few bits that got flipped. Um, then you can read back the arrows that correspond to that path that you took through the trellis diagram. Every time you have an up arrow, that was a zero in the original message. Every time you have a down arrow, that was a one in the original message. And so you can read back the original message, not the encoded message, even the original message just from the directions of the arrows through the trellis diagram, which is really cool. It feels like this like secret code that just kind of pops up. Yeah, that's really cool. End. So I think that was really cool. Um, and again, the Viterbi algorithm is another one of these algorithms that has a lot of applications beyond just decoding um, messages from outer space, um, in particular natural language processing, which one of these days I will get around to actually learning about. But in the meantime, I'm pretty tickled to just know about it within this context. Also, uh, just to bring this back to the very beginning, the Viterbi algorithm is used for sending messages to Mars Pathfinder, Mars Exploration Rover, and the Cassini probe, which went by Saturn and recently took a bunch of pictures of Pluto. So we can thank the Viterbi algorithm for all of those really incredible pictures and for helping us understand how Pluto really isn't just a dead rock. It's actually got, I think seismic activity on it right oh i don't know that sounds kind of cool though yeah that was uh that was back in july of 2015 when that happened super well uh thank you viterbi algorithm convolutional codes and i don't know if reed salomon codes were involved also but they're pretty cool still a dwarf planet though i think it's not even like really a planet but as we're recording this this was the day that nasa announced that they found a bunch of dwarf planets somewhere out in space and that's pretty exciting also yeah, exoplanets are all orbiting the same star and everything. Anyway, um, that's <laughs> not related to this episode at all, but also very, very cool. And um, check out NASA's website for an update on that, if you haven't already. And just one last plug for this being, this is a topic where I think having a good visual aid uh, works wonders. So check out LinearDigressions.com um, and we will post some of our favorite links, which I have, I found very illuminating on this topic where you can actually see what a trellis diagram is and all this kind of fun stuff. Linear Digressions is a creative commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com. 
in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.